This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Over the last couple of years, um, I've been really fascinated with the fiction of Michel Houellebecq, the French novelist. I find him sort of horrifying in some ways. The novels are vulgar to the extreme. Uh, and he himself is a, is a person loves controversy in ways that I myself do not especially love controversy. But I do think that Willebeck, whatever, whatever his flaws and whatever his prose, is very good at articulating concerns that he at least believes are endemic in the contemporary West. Uh, his own answers to those are not necessarily always mine, but he is articulating concerns that people have. Um, he seems especially to be articulating his own sense that we live in a civilization in a time that's dying of sorrow and is dying of self-disgust. It's exhausted with itself. It no longer believes its own stories. It's not sure whether it should have confidence in its own stories or not. And that may be for the best. There are aspects of our own civilization which deserve critique, aspects of our civilization which perhaps deserve to be exhausted. But if you are a resident of an exhausted civilization, many of the pathways and cultural scripts that you would normally have to tell you what to do, what to do next, how to live, what's noble, what's honorable, what's ignoble and base, you either don't have access to them or you don't believe them because they appear to be exhausted. Uh, for several years now, I've been asking students why so many of them are fascinated with Jordan Peterson. I don't, I don't quite get it. So I grew up about two hours south where Jordan Peterson grew up. And everything he says just sounds like everything my uncle and my aunts told me. Like, what is the fascination with this guy? Uh, and the best answer I've ever received from a student yet is, well, nobody has ever given me uh, an advice about what to do in life. And so I'm looking for advice. It's not easy to be a resident of a civilization when the civilization feels sad and non-confident. It gives us new opportunities, but it also makes us feel um, some ennui sometimes. So... In many of the stories, Willebeck is giving options that people choose to find meaning in life when those options themselves are increasingly viewed with suspicion or having exhausted themselves in some ways. Take, for instance, his, uh, one of his earlier novels, Elementary Particles. In Elementary Particles, we have two brothers trying to find their way in life. One chooses the pathway of science. He becomes um, not just a world-renowned scientist, he becomes a scientist who changes the future of humanity by removing the necessity of sexual reproduction and creating the kind of cloning and creating a brand new system of life. But he does this because he himself has become fundamentally disgusted with humanity. He doesn't see humanity as worth continuing. His brother is not a scientist. His brother lives a life of almost complete sexual license, looking for connection and looking for some human aspect to his life which is worth having. In the end, the brother becomes so disgusted with his own inability to form human connection that he checks himself into a mental hospital, even though he does not necessarily have a mental illness, in order to not have to deal with humanity and human life as he no longer wishes to live it. The novel after that that I read is Submission. Submission deals with religion more explicitly. And there's this remarkable scene in Submission, I find this scene quite intoxicating, where the protagonist, whose name is Francois, He's France itself. Francois departs from Paris and he runs to the countryside to, vis to visit a historical place of French Catholicism where there's a famous statue of Madonna. And he spends a great deal of time there. 
And there's this one scene where the Madonna comes to life in his vision and she's going to stride back into France. Now, if you know the, the sort of uh, pretense that France has sometimes to be the oldest or eldest daughter of the church, there's this unique relationship between Catholicism and France. And in Francois's image, the Madonna and the child in her hands are coming to life to reestablish Catholicism in France and the law of God in the land. And Peggy is being sung in the background. And Francois is about to have this profound transcendental encounter with the Madonna and with Jesus. And then he decides that maybe he just needs some food. And he runs back down and he eats some duck and he comes back to his normal life and he checks back out. Religion is tried, sort of, and found wanting. In the most recent of the Willebeck novels that I've read, Serotonin, which is remarkable because in some ways it almost predicts the Yellow Vest protests before they happen. Here we have an individual who is tired of science. He's a scientist of sorts. He's exhausted by sexual encounters. And in the end, he is using medi abusing medication in order not really to live, but to not die. And here's what the character in Serotonin suggests. He says, God has disappointed. The character says that God is a mediocre scriptwriter, and the script that he has written is mediocre. And the entire universe seems to be disappointing, mediocre, and not yet done. The character continues by suggesting that the Judeo-Christian world is like a boxer that fought one too many fights. You know, this experience of the aging boxer goes back for one more fight and just gets destroyed. He's just too old, the reflexes aren't there, and he's injured. The protagonist suggests that the Judeo-Christian world lasted one too many millennia. But it ended in the 2000s, in the, you know, in the 1990s. That would have been a remarkable run for the Judeo-Christian world, but because it limped into the third millennium, as the dating goes. It's now like a boxer which has lasted too long. Now, I think that represents something quite obvious to, to many of us and to many of our contemporaries, which is God's time is up. God had his go. It worked pretty well for a while. Or maybe it didn't work well for a while, but at least it worked. The idea of God captured the imagination. It created institutions. It created a sense of ethos. It created a sense of ethics and moral life. It created arts and architecture in the universities. It was a good run. And now time's up. And we modern people just know better. We're knowing about these things. We look at the faith of earlier generations and think of it as something quaint, something of the past, something not to return to. It's a sense that we're just beyond it. Does that sound familiar to any of you? That, that sense of... Yeah, it was a nice run. I understand that people used to believe these things, but it's just not for us. We're past it. There's a wonderful poem by Czeslav Milos called The Second Space, where Milos recognizes that for many people, the loss of God is not experienced as a loss at all. Terry Eagleton in one book suggests that the loss of God is post-tragic, there was a time when people, like the poem, I'll just read you from, from Milosh, lamented that God was dead, that God, who had been so important culturally, was now disappearing. And Eagleton suggests that for us, the, the loss of God isn't even experienced as a loss. It's just not there as a live option. Here's what Milosh says, though. He says, let us weep. 
Lament the enormity of the loss. Let us smear our faces with coal, loosen our hair. Let us implore that that it is returned to us, this second space. Do you know people who feel that way? Do you feel that way? The sense of the enormity of the loss of God in culture and society? Or is it just another moment of the past, which is the past that we know better of, better than now? Now, here's the strange thing. I think this is a strange and fascinating phenomenon. We know that for so many of our peers, the death and loss of God is not experienced as a loss or death because God's time is up. And yet we also know that while religion, organized religion, continues its precipitous decline in the West, not true everywhere in the world, by the way, but certainly in the developed West, religion seems to be in steep decline. The two fastest growing religions in North America, I'm told if the social science is true, are the nuns, right, those who identify no religion, and form those who identify as being formerly Roman Catholic. Two fastest growing religions in the West are those who don't have religion. It's not true everywhere. I saw a chart recently, which just in the last few years showed uh, religious adherence. The question was a strange one. It asked, how certain are you? Are you certain that God exists? That's pretty tough, right? I'm a philosopher. There's some days I'm not certain I exist, let alone certain that God exists. But it's it's an awkward question. But it goes like this. The the so-called, I'm using the categories from the chart. The so-called greatest generation, religious belief from 20, you know, belief that certainty belief that God exists from 2012 to 2019 essentially goes flat. Xers like myself, it goes up just a tiny little bit. Millennials declines, and Gen Z goes like this, sort of straight down. And at the very same time, we see genuine interest and fascination with spirituality. All sorts of individuals who think of organized religion as exhausted, enervated, depraved, decadent, wicked even, Right, is not being in keeping with human dignity, is is an illegitimate source of force and power. Those who think of as the traditional god or traditional gods of the traditional religion is just beyond the pale, not worth believing in, almost laughable. Nonetheless, turning to aspects and resources from the various religious traditions in one way or the other to create for themselves a kind of bespoke religiosity or bespoke spirituality. Now, there's a bunch of reasons that might be the case, but it's fascinating to see religion decline and spirituality not decline. Here are some possible reasons. I don't assume this is an exhaustive list and I make no moral judgments about them. I have my moral judgments about them, but I don't make them now, not out loud. First, some people may just think that there are aspects of truth to be found in some of these religious claims. I myself am not a Stoic. I think Seneca and Cicero are wrong about the fundamental things, but I think Seneca is right about how to think about aging. People could be like that about religious traditions. There's some aspect of the religion that they believe is true without buying into the whole story. Second, many people find that there are aspects of religious life which could be useful to them, maybe for health or well-being, for mindfulness, for self-care. Think about things like meditation, chant, or liturgical dance that people will incorporate into their life, essentially because it's useful in their own understanding to living well, being happy, and so on. Or third, maybe it's aesthetics. Ever been to an Anglican even song at Oxford? I have. I'm not an Anglican. There's a transcendent aesthetic experience of even song at an Anglican service. That's a reason to embrace it. Or fourth, the experience of transcendence. 
Are any of you, I used to be like this, but now I'm old and I'm busy and I have children to occupy my time. Are any of you transcendence hounds? You know that experience you can have at the beach, at the Grand Canyon, at a prayer service, where the sense of the mysterious is there, the sense of the sublime is there. Sometimes it's a horrifying experience, but when it's gone, how many of you want it back? So maybe a Maybe people are transcendent towns. They want that experience. I do too. A fifth reason would be that we're all formed as morally therapeutic deists if we're young people, you know, formerly young people in the West. Everybody know what morally therapeutic deist is? Generically believes in a higher power. Maybe it's God or it's not. That higher power wants you to be a good person. That's the moral part. And they really want you to be happy. That's the therapeutic part. So there's a sort of God-like creature, and that God really loves you, really affirms you, and really wants you to be happy. That's okay. That's not commandments and condemnations. You can imagine a kind of spirituality which would like there to be some sort of higher power who approves of me. Life can be lonely. If there was a force in the universe which said RJ's okay, I'd like that. And sixth and finally, some of this, it seems to me, is just flat-out consumerism and spiritual tourism. A little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that. If it wasn't in religion, we would think of it as cultural appropriation, but because it's in spirituality, we think of it as a kind of spiritual quest or largeness of soul in life, right? You have a little bit of Buddhism, you have a little bit of Christianity, you have a little bit of the Kabbalah, you have a little bit of this, and you've created for yourself a bespoke spirituality. Now, this isn't going anywhere. This is, in fact, quite prevalent, is it not? And for some of the reasons or, or more that I've given. Now, this isn't supposed to happen, though. If you've ever read any of the history about the secularization thesis, you know that what was predicted in the West was once we became scientific, once we became industrial and post-industrial, once we became educated and wealthy and affluent, religion would simply wither away. It had served its purpose if there was one. But educated, affluent, liberated people were just not going to be religious. Now, it turns out worldwide that might not be happening. In fact, some of the social science indicates that the more robust and demanding the religious claims are, the more it's growing and the more adherence it has. But the secularization thesis taken strictly would also seem to imply that this kind of spirituality should wither on the vine too. I mean, a modern scientific person who knows what we are, that knows we're matter in motion, that we're wet robots, is not going to, at the same time, at the end of their day, governed by science and economics and technology, dabble in spiritual things, are they? Why would you? And yet we are. We're dabbling in spiritual things quite a bit. The secularization thesis seems to not be holding. Now, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes thinking about Charles Taylor. Has anybody read the big book, A Secular Age, by Charles Taylor? One. Shoots. I can't just say whatever I want about it because someone will know. Rats. Okay. Taylor asks whether or not we're secular. And he says, well, it depends what we mean. And he gives three definitions of secularity. Secularity, one, is what we think of as the liberal democratic state, the non-confessional state. We live in a secular republic. Now, maybe you buy that or don't buy that. Maybe you wish it were so or wish it weren't so. But in theory, at least, we have separation of church and state. That's secularity, one. Secularity, two, is just the prevalence of attendance at church, synagogue, etc. How many people think of themselves as being religious and adhering to a particular religious claim? That's secularity, too. Secularity, three, though, is the interesting one for Taylor. 
Secularity three, he says, is about the conditions of belief. What makes it possible for people to believe or impossible for them to believe? Easy to believe or hard to believe? So he asks the question, why is it in Paris in the 13th century, it's hard to not believe? You might actually be an atheist, but you gotta work against the grain in some ways to be an atheist in Paris in the 13th century. It's not easy or natural to be an atheist. Whereas if you're in New Haven in the 21st century, much more easy to be a non-believer or agnostic or an atheist, yes? Now, he says, that's about the conditions of belief. I suspect if you're a person of faith and you're a student at, at uh, this fine institution, you know, I work at Princeton sometimes, so I'm glad to be here. You have to work to have faith and to keep faith here. It's not just natural and obvious. Fair? Fair statement? That's secularity three. Here's Taylor's big story. First is about our picture of the world and the second is about our picture of the self. It's more complicated than this, but imagine a large story from the 13th to the 21st century. Here's the first bit. Taylor says that in the medieval world, and indeed but in the medieval world, there's a sense that the world is haunted and charged with forces beyond the mundane. He talk, he's a great word for this, apotropaic powers. So he gives an example. Imagine that it's Candlemas. Candlemas is a celebration. The Paschal candle is lit. Often people will light their own personal candles from the Paschal candle and take it home. Now, the candle that you have lit from the Paschal candle. And that Paschal candle itself has at one point been placed into the baptismal font. The candle itself has been exercised. If you go home at night and there's a large storm, what's happening? Remember, it's 13th century rural France. What's happening when there's a large storm outside of your house? There may be gods, there may be demons, there may be spirits. What do you do when, this, when the forces of the storm are raging around you? You light your candle, which has been blessed because of its participation in the Paschal candle. Or in that same village, you would like to have really great crops that year. So you get the image or the statue of Our Lady and you beat the bonds of your fields, yes? Why? What makes the, field, the crops not grow? Malevolent forces, spirits the ancestors, things are charged. Things can become um, contagious. Imagine if you touch something unclean. Imagine if you read something unclean, eat something unclean. What happens to you? Are you impermeable to this or can you be yourself become infected by the contagion? You yourself can become infected by the contagion. Things have powers and those powers reside in the things in this world. They don't reside in our imagination of the things and our social story about the things. They're thought to reside in the things themselves. In the Roman Catholic world, a prime example of this, of course, would be the Eucharist. Yes, if you're a Roman Catholic and you believe in the story of transubstantiation, once the host has been consecrated, what is the host? It's God. Is it bread any longer? Now, if you're a contemporary skeptic or scientific person, what causes crops to fail? What causes storms? And what is bread over which words have been spoken? 
things don't have power for us in that same sense. And we don't believe, Taylor says, that we are permeable to forces in the world in the same way. We don't believe we're going to become possessed with the spirit. We don't believe that we can fight off evil with water of a certain sort or with images of a certain kind. We don't believe we can keep locusts at bay with prayers. And we don't believe that we ourselves can become formed one way or another by powers malevolent or benevolent outside of us. Now, as a result, Taylor says, for us, the world, ourselves with respect to the world, is buffered. We are impermeable in some sense. The world, the powers of the world, can't really get into us because we're scientific. Now, that's also, he suggests, a flattened world. You don't have to admit this out loud, but if you want to, you can. How many of you have read some level of fantasy? I think they're making a Robert Jordan series for HBO soon, or you've read Tolkien, or you've read Narnia. I don't really know fantasy very much. How many of you have read the world of fantasy and thought something to yourself like, I wish I lived in that world? Anybody like taught themselves elvish at one point? <laughs> or dwarvish? You have a sword hidden somewhere in your house from when you were 14? Or no judgment, maybe it's in your dorm room now. How many of you thought that the runes of Elvish had like magical powers and if you said them you could do it? Because it's very romantic, yes? As opposed to a flattened world, the flattened world in which you reside. Are there demons behind the corner in our world? No. Are there angels behind the corner in our world? No. Can words transform the ontology of reality? No. Can you fight the Balrog with your, with, with your incantations? No. The world's flat. Transcendence for us is not present. Things are flat. In the medieval world, we have the world of imminence, all that we think of as being and non-being in the contingent world, contingent realm. And not as a member of that series, but utterly transcendent to the series is the world of God. For us moderns, there's just immense. And thus, there are no gods or monsters, trolls or elves, incantations, or celebrations of the Eucharist. Things are flat. That's the world. What about us? Taylor suggests that in that medieval world picture, the self that we are is not merely a self-narration. There's a story given to us about what it means to be an authentic self in the medieval world. Think about the epic quests in in medieval literature, quasi-medieval literature, where one has to entertain or undergo some trial, some voyage, some journey to become the sort of self that one is meant to be. But the meant to be has an external storyteller. It's a voice from beyond. For us, Taylor, this is, I think, maybe more particularly true for the modern than the postmodern world. But for us, we are all, he says, we can't help but start with the default position of expressive individualism. What we're trying to do is be authentic to ourselves and be the best version of the inner story that I have of myself. This never goes away, but you remember the intensity of being 14, 15 years old? Again, you don't have to admit this. Maybe it's along with the sword and your book of basic Elvish grammar. 
But you remember the journals that you wrote or you don't, you know, pretended to not write when you were 14, many of which started with the same question, who am I? Who am I? What am I for? You're looking for authenticity, yes. Now, if there's an external voice, it's easy to know what it means to be authentic. Do these things, don't do those things. Or if you belong in a kind of heroic or traditional society, it's very easy. Well, you're the son of so-and-so. What it means to be the authentic you is to be the blacksmith or the king. You're the daughter of so-and-so. What it means to be the authentic you is to be the queen or the wife of the blacksmith. There's no grand struggle to determine who you are. Now, part of what we enjoy as modern people is the freedom to not just be the blacksmith's, the blacksmith or the blacksmith's wife if we would like to be something else. But you also know the almost at times unbearable tension of needing to invent for yourself what is the authentic you and what you are meant to be as defined by you. Is any of this resonating? Have you ever wished that there was the storyteller to tell you what to do? Like, all right, 21 years old, you've just graduated from Yale, the world is yours. And you think, I have this marvelous education, I'm among those educated people in the history of the world, and now I shall. And your eyes get big, and you have anxiety, and you hyperventilate just a little bit because you have no idea what you should do next, right? So you apply to law school. <laughs> That's what you do. It would be comforting to have a storyteller. There isn't one for most of us. It's not a storyteller. Now, think about the difference between belief and non-belief in a world in which there is a transcendent God or deity or entities of some sort who are nonetheless present in the world and there's white magic in the world. There's Paschal candles. There's Eucharist. There's incantations. And trying to believe when that's not there. When what you know and have been educated to believe and know is the world of imminence, the world of science, the world of analysis, the world of logic, the world of economics, the world of medicine. Harder to believe when white magic isn't everywhere around you, yes? Now, struggle to determine the meaning of your life and who you are when the transcendent storyteller is not there, the institutions and authorities, the priestly class in Nietzsche's phrase, when they're gone. Here's another way of putting it. How many of you, especially students, when you think of the institutions in your life, find that the institutions are not in fact telling you quite what to do next in your life. They're presenting options, options, options. But you're 20 years old. Do you know what to do with those options and the proliferation of options? Or does it look like death by option? You have to find your own way and your own story. Now, is there any tension to living in a world which is flat? Which means when you look beyond it, what does one see? When you look beyond the imminent world of science, what does one see? What do you see when you look beyond the world of science? The abyss. Nothing. Universe is cold, stark, dead, and doesn't care about you. And you, 
for better or for worse, lots is better about this, by the way. Don't understand what I'm saying is like some nostalgic appeal to like 13th century France. This is Taylor's history of what it means to believe or not believe now. It's not a call to return. What does it mean to be you now in an imminent world where you have to find and create and constitute for yourself the meaning of your existence without normative authorities and the normative authority telling you what to do? Do you feel any tensions? Do you feel that that at times is something of a burden? Okay. Do you see why you might turn to spirituality as, an, as a help, as an assist, as a benefit, as think of different motivations and I'm not ascribing them all to say a relief, kind of play acting, uh, I have friends who do cosplay. They go to like Comic Con. They go to Renaissance fairs. I don't. I don't get that world at all. Uh, but I gather that people do, and they have a good time, and they joust or whatever they do. It's play acting, yeah. It's fun. It's a bit of relief from the tedium of life. You get to pretend that you live in the world where there are stories. Spirituality can be that sort of sense, can't it? Kind of relief from the absence of story, an image play where there are aspects beyond you, here's the key, but to which you are not actually beholden. If there is, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, that's different from an image of spirituality you give to yourself that you can discard. So you're young. You're still doing this, yes? How many of you are trying on identities the way that you try on a coat and take it off? So you're a freshman, you went to the freshman fair. How many campus clubs did you sign up for? At least one, 10, 20? Now, how many of you at some point have said today, you know, I'm really a mountaineer. And you buy some North Face stuff. You go to REI and you buy the gear and that's your identity. You're like outdoorsy person. You watch the YouTube channels. And then you realize that's really dangerous and I have weak upper body strength. <laughs> And you discard the image, discard the identity, and you think, I'm really into mock trial. I heard you mention mock trial. You put on your mock trial, ah, I'm not very good at this. I'm slow of speech and I keep losing. I'm an alienated emo. This feels more at home for me. You know what I mean by the putting on and discarding of identities? The putting on and discarding of spiritualities? Because they don't with the normative force of authority say, thou shalt and thou shalt not. You put them on and put them off at the convenience of your own identity, which is, by the way, emancipating, liberating, and also confining and entrapping, because who has to invent the story? You do. Okay, this is the Mystic Institute. None of that was Thomism. Here's what the Thomists would think. I'm a cheerful and apologetic Thomist. I think if Thomas wrote more true propositions than anyone else, in part because he just wrote more propositions than anybody else. <laughs> I like that joke. I use that joke too much, but I like that joke. He, he wrote more true propositions than anybody because he wrote more than anybody, which is true. He wrote more of his words than anybody else's. Here's the first. This is a big one. For Thomas Aquinas, religion is cognitive. Now, I don't mean by that that religion is merely thinking. 
What I mean by that is religious claims have cognitive value. They could be true or they could be false. They're not mere articulations of preference. They're not articulations of appetite. They're not merely articulations of will. They are statements which purport to be true about the world, about God, about the human being, about morality, about sin, death, salvation, sex, etc. Now, you may believe them to be false. Many people do. That's up to your conscience to determine whether they're true or false. But because they are, can be true as opposed to merely articulations of preference or appetite or will or whim, you are, he thinks, obligated, duty-bound to seek the truth of religion, even if what you conclude in the end is this is false. But note, to conclude that religion is false, I'm Roman Catholic. Some of you may conclude that Roman Catholicism is false. Some of you may conclude that it's damnably false. To conclude that it's false is nonetheless to grant that it's the sort of thing which could possibly be true. It's the sort of thing which is making claims which purport to be true, as opposed to merely, or that sounds, that sounds derogatory or demissive, as opposed to an understanding of religiosity which doesn't purport to be true, so it's not even false, it's merely a mode of being. It's a way of inhabiting space. So first is, religions, many religions, certainly some of them, make truth claims, and you are, I think, always and everywhere duty-bound to seek the truth of things and to live in harmony with the truth as you understand it. Religion of this sort asks you to consider its truth. This is also, by the way, why religion which commands or forces is not in keeping with the truth of religion. And spirituality also does not ask or uh, propose so religion is different from spirituality in that sense. Second, religion, or at least of the sort that Thomas understands and believes in, there is the transcendence of the call. There is a creator. One can know truths about the creator. One can know them by revelation, but one can also know them by reason. There's an interesting claim that, that Thomas makes um, and that is later interpreted by the Catholic Church. I find this to be a fascinating claim. You are, Thomas thinks, he doesn't quite put it in this way, duty-bound by faith to believe that God can be known by reason. So I'm a Roman Catholic, teaches in my, the, the authoritative teachings of my own community, so authoritative, revealed, tell me that I must believe that God can be known by reason. That's an interesting claim, isn't it? All sorts of possible performative contradictions there. The caller can be known, at least in some ways, not perfectly, in this side of the beatific vision, we don't know God's essence, Thomas says. But we can know at least what is false about this. This entity is non-contingent. This entity is non-evil. This entity is not without power. This entity is not without being, etc. Okay? And this being calls and enters into, in some way, the world. Maybe simply by creation, by creating the world, right? All forms of theism believe that. Maybe by revealing law or entering into covenant. Some forms of theism would think that, not all. Maybe by entering into it merely by the effects of his agency, God's agency. Just think of that as providence. 
or by the Catholic understanding, entering into it in space and time as a human being who's also God. Now, those are not all the same claim, but they all do claim that the transcendent being, the storyteller, the one who creates, is asking something of you. That's different than many forms of spirituality. Now, if this being makes truth claims and you're duty-bound to seek the truth of those claims and duty-bound to live in harmony with the keeping of truth as you understand it, what I mean is you can't have bad conscience. We all have bad conscience sometimes, yes? I know X to be true, or at least I highly believe X to be true, seems to be entailed by X that I not do Z. I could probably do Z if I do some little finessing here. That would be bad conscience. By living in harmony with the truth as you understand it. If you understand that there's a transcendent entity who's making particular claims, you're duty bound to figure out whether you think that's true or not, and then to live in keeping with the truth as you understand it. That's a big claim. That's a hard claim. That's maybe an unpalatable claim. But a whole lot of spirituality doesn't make that claim upon you. Third, it's an infused universe. Here's what I mean by that. Whether or not you believe in the white magic that Taylor was referring to, religion, at least of the sort that Thomas understands, believes that the world and the things of the world have dignity and grandeur because they are created and sustained by God. Now, it's easy to be a deist of sorts. I mean, of all the religious beliefs, it seems to me deism is probably the easiest one to hold. Like, where does the universe come from? Oh, there's got to be some sort of entity to create it. And it sort of winds it up and then off it goes. But, you know, this deistic entity doesn't have to be personal, doesn't have to speak, doesn't have to command, doesn't have to be involved in my life. That's the easiest to believe, it seems to me. Maybe not for you. For me, that would be easier to believe. If, on the other hand, this entity not only creates the world, but preserves it at every moment, such that none of this and none of what happens in this imminent frame can continue or be even now or now or now or now or now. It means that even the least significant thing, the least of these, the sparrow, the hair in one's head, is held and suspended by an entity who needn't hold it or suspend it, but does. Now, for Greek philosophers, things which were non-necessary were thus without real value. For Thomas, it is in fact the contingency or the non-necessity of the things of our world, including our lives, the fact that we need not be, but that we are because a being who needn't have created us has no internal compulsion, not compelled by anything external, freely chooses to create us as contingent, but then also holds us into the preservation of our existence means that everything matters and everything has fundamental value. Fourth and finally about religion as opposed to many forms of spirituality. This world of religiosity is embedded. It's social and horizontal. It includes structures and organization. It includes teachers, it includes parents, includes tradition. It includes the claims of the community upon us. Here's a simple example. For better or for worse, and there's a lot of worse in this, okay? A lot of worse in this. We belong in some fashion to a family. Maybe you're alienated from your family. Maybe you're very close to your family. Maybe you've had a very kind family. 
maybe you haven't had such a kind such a kind family but we're there in it in some way happily or unhappily family even unhappy families we feel the constraints and the claims of families upon us i tell my i have five young children now some of them are getting older now i will tell them often about their grandmother who grew up very poor finished eighth grade lived in a dirt house in the canadian prairies the day i got my phd my grandmother said to me you're a doctor i didn't have the heart to tell her not the kind that you I deal with metaphysical emergencies, Grandma. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of a doctor. She said, but you wear a coat, right? I said, yeah, I wear a coat. So I always wear a coat when I teach, because my grandmother asked me that question. So I'm duty-bound to her, because she worked and saved and struggled, so there would be just a little more. And I'll tell my own children, when they're complaining about their studies, they're studying for Grandma Sally. She's long dead. I loved her. I was devoted to her. She's dead. She does not exist as a subject who can make a claim upon me or upon my children. And yet, I feel the claim of a tradition and a community. Religion, as Thomas understands it, is a social entity, and it includes not merely our own self-interpretation of it, but being beholden and embedded to others, including the traditions of the past. It's different than any forms of spirituality, yes? Now, I'm not solving anything here. I'm trying to articulate why I think that so many people are attracted to spirituality, I'm trying to express real sympathy for that, and I'm trying to express that religion as understood by Thomas is intellectually and um, morally superior. Or truer, if you want. Superior is an ugly word. Truer, if you want. Not everyone thinks that. But I do want to end with this. Anyone read John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul? Brilliant book, brilliant book. Tell me if I'm getting the interpretation right. John of the Cross says, people begin to experience God. Yeah? The mysterium tremendum, to use that language. The all-holy one, to use that language. The one who speaks in silence, that sort of language, yes? And it can be very exciting to have the experience of God, yes? Religious experience can be very exciting. The experience of transcendence can be very exciting. In the Dark Night of the Soul, John of the Cross says, you can make an idol out of the experience of God. What you're supposed to worship is not your experience of God, but God. And often God preserves you from idolatry by no longer granting you the experience of God. Am I getting it right? Genuine religion, it seems to me, as Thomas understands it at least, suggests that the point of all of this is God, not the experience of God, not the consolations of God, not the usefulness of God, not the experience, the emotions, the satisfaction, the sublime, the beauty which can come along with God, but God. That's a starker claim, is it not, than the sense of using aspects of religion in ways that provide benefits to us. Oftentimes, the religion does not. And yet, there is this benefit. This is what I'll end with. This is a benefit to religion as Aquinas understands it. And that's that there is a God. And that this God has created us and sustains us. And I can't think of a better way to articulate that than the poem Leaden Echo and Golden Echo by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Can I read that to you? 
I won't read it all. In the first half of the poem, Hopkins is dealing with the approach with age and death. You're getting wrinkled, you're losing your hair, your body aches, you're no longer as fast or as supple as you were, and in the end are tombs and decay, worms, dust, death. And he says, wisdom is to be beginning to despair, to despair, 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 despair. Let's go back. But then Hopkins says this. This is, if there's a God and if it's true, he says this. Spare. There is one. Yes, I have one. Hush there. No, only not within the scene of the sun, not within the singeing of the strong sun, tall suns tinging or treacherous like the changing of earth's air. Somewhere, elsewhere, there is a well one. Where? One. Yes, I can tell you of such a place. I do know such a key. Where whatever's prized and passes of us, wherever's that fresh and fast flying of us, seems to us sweet of us and swiftly done away with, done away with, undone, undone, done away with, soon done with, and yet dearly and dangerously sweet of us. The wimpled water dimpled not by morning matched face, the flower of beauty, fleece of beauty, too, too apt to ah flee. Never fleets more. Fastened with the tenderest truth to its own best being and its loveliness of Come then, your ways and airs and looks, locks, maiden, gear, gallantry, and gaiety, and grace, winning ways, airs, innocent, sweet looks, loose locks, long locks, love locks, gay gear, going gallant, girl grace, resign them, sign them, seal them, send them, motion them, deliver them with breath, and with sigh, soaring, soaring sighs, deliver them, beauty in the ghost, deliver it early now, long before death. Give beauty back, beauty, 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 back to God, beauty's self and beauty's giver, see not a hair is, not an eyelash, not the least lash lost. Every hair, every hair of the head is numbered. Nay, what we had light-handedly left, and surely the mere mold will have walked and waxed and walked with the wind. What while we slept, this side, that side, hurling a heady, heavy-headed hundredfold, that while we, while we slumbered, oh then, weary then, why should we tread? Why are we so haggard at the heart, so hair-coiled, care-killed, so fast, so cog-co-cumbered? When the thing, our lives, we freely forfeit, is kept with fonder a care. Fonder a care kept, far with fonder a care, and we who should have lost it, finer, fonder a care kept, where kept, do but tell me where kept, where? Yonder. What? High is that? We follow, now we follow. Yonder. 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 The claim of religion, as Aquinas makes it, is that there is a God. Not only does he command, but his commandments are life. And that there is one who keeps us with fonder care than we could ever have kept ourselves. For Aquinas, that story is knowable. Thanks all. We have some question time, I think. I got all worked up reading Hopkins. Leaden Echo, Golden Echo, by Gerard Manley Hopkins. There's a brilliant reading of it by Richard Burton, which is uh, utterly, utterly entrancing. So please, your questions, your disputes, disagreements, challenges, please. So I really enjoyed the talk, uh, especially the poem at the end, because like I mentioned, but um, I was wondering, so the, the title of the talk being, uh, can you be spiritual or not religious? Um, it seemed that you laid out a really good argument for uh, why someone should not only be spiritual but also religious. But then it seemed to me 
that one, if presented in the narrative format, the, uh, the narrative being complete, but a narrative nonetheless is either one could be spiritual uh, in some sense and, and not religious. Is that? Well, to me, it seems self-evident that a person can be spiritual but not religious in the sense that people are, or they at least claim to be. Now, if you have a broad definition of religion, which includes something that you worship or something, then pretty hard to be spiritual but not religious because anything that you value and orient your life around is at least analogous to worship. But if by religion we mean what, what I mean here, which is a socially embodied through time set of practices and claims, that claim to be true in some form or another, then spirituality most often tends, when we mean it by spiritual but not religious, to not embrace those claims, to not make claims that these are true and we're duty bound to them, that it's not socially and institutionally extended through time, that the tradition does not make claims. It seems to be something else. And I'm deeply sympathetic to that something else, which is the attempt of human beings trapped in the imminent frame without God to have meaning, to reconstitute a certain kind of white magic, which for the religious person in one form or another is there by the presence of the religion extended through time and the claims of the God, the law, the covenant, the community, the gods, whatever it happens to be. Please. Could we say, as a corollary, that it is also possible to be religious but not spiritual, and that you could still have depth of morality and traditions and a whole purpose and all that without anything falls off the wall? Yeah, it seems to me, I mean, religion is a broad term. Religion means, means a lot of different things. There are certainly religious systems which don't have belief in personal deity, right? Which you might think of as almost tantamount to a philosophy as opposed to, say, a monotheistic religion. Those sorts of religions look like a philosophy. But they're religious, at least in their own self-understanding. You could certainly imagine, or I can imagine, a religion which seems to be more like an ethical code or a set of social and political norms, which doesn't have the aspects that you might think of as discipleship or rituals or rites or spiritual disciplines, those sorts of things which is what we often, at least what I often think of as being part and parcel of spirituality. Prayers, meditation, disciplines, and fasting, feasting, those sorts of things. You could have a philosophic system. I think Stoicism is pretty close to religion in that sense. I think that could, you can have that. Please. I Sure. Yep. And so I just, I just wonder if you know, it could be like a gap 
relate to something very, very substantial. Yeah, it, it certainly may be. So when I'm using spirituality here, I'm imagining that the sort of common, what I take to be a fairly common phenomenon, certainly common in my neighborhood and in my communities, of someone who does not wish or cannot bring themselves to wish to believe in the existence of deity, deity's higher power, and the sort of more generic 12-step language, who can't find themselves able to believe in organized religion of sorts, who nonetheless feel the need or the itch for certain kinds of experiences as being helpful to their self-understanding and their ability to self-interpret. Now, I'm deeply sympathetic to that. I think it's inadequate in the end, but it certainly seems possible and plausible to me that anyone who is seeking for meaning, for truth, for repentance, for coherence, for integrity of life, may very well find pathways which lead to what I take to be the truth, which is there is a God who's concerned for your happiness, the integrity of your life, social, political norms, repentance, wholeness, healing, and so on. So I'm not suspicious of the sense that someone looking for meaning, looking for experience, might be able to find something which I think of as truer or more full in religion. I do think that the predominant tendency of the spiritual but not religious mode in the contemporary life is against religion and into what John of the Cross would think of as the temptation for an experience rather than the, than the being itself. But certainly, there'd be thousands of counterexamples of someone who has found their way. Maybe one more question. One more? I talked too long, I'm sorry. Please. So you talk, um, mentioned things about like current society Yeah. No, of course, imagining what allow what helps someone else to believe or not believe, it's, it's hard, difficult to do, right? What I find to be conditions of belief, you might think it's just absolutely preposterous. And what you find to be conditions of belief, I think, no, no, that's why I don't do that. But you could certainly imagine that communities which are unable to give articulate reasons for themselves or communities which are overtly hostile to various aspects of contemporary society, which are indeed advances, that communities hostile to that may have more difficult time retaining their young, convincing people to stay and that sort of thing. Communities which have um, articulations of social norms or norms placed upon individuals that those individuals find to be unbearable out of keeping with their own well-being and happiness may very likely have more difficult time passing on the conditions of belief to their young or to not. But then on the other hand, you see flourishing communities of religious or communal belief that I look at and think, boy, I would not want to be part of that community because I don't believe that community to be keeping with. So part of that then is defined by what the individual or the community believes to be the substance of good sense, reason, the good parts of contemporary life, human happiness, individual fulfillment, and so on. Certainly I know that there is nonetheless a certain cultural script by no means absent at elite educational institutions, which would suggest that um, self-determination, autonomy, and so on is, is a high value deeply to be cherished. And it would be diff it's more difficult to belong to a religion if it makes normative claims upon you 
given those those priorities and those commitments. Is that universal? No. Is it prevalence in common? Yeah. Thank you all. Very grateful to be with you.